Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. And by BowlandBranch.com, the company that makes luxury betting affordable. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off your order plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use the promo code MONEY. And buy Tax Act. File simple federal and state returns for free by visiting taxact.com slash slate. Tax Act will guide you through every step of the process, using your computer, tablet, or phone, and get you the maximum refund guaranteed. That's taxact.com slash slate. Hello, and welcome to the Emoji edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Um, sadly, as Felix sort of hinted last week, uh, he and Kathy are out. Uh, it's just me of the three regulars. However, uh, don't fear, we are joined, or I am joined this week by uh, Miriam Gottfried from the Wall Street Journal, who also has her own podcast, Heard on the Street. Uh, Miriam, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Once again, your second time. Is this your second or third it's time? It's my second time. Your second time around on the show. Yes. And and we also are joined by Shane Farrow of the Huffington Post. Hi, great to be here. And also, this is looking your... forward to having my own podcast sometime in the future. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> you're feeling left out. Uh, is This is also your second time on the show, right? It is. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you both back. We're going to uh, be starting off on a, a kind of a tale of two social networks. Uh, Facebook right now is refining the way it's going to control all of our emotional lives, while Twitter is just figuring out a way to even get into them um, and try, <laughs> try to figure... Uh, I think it's gotten into them maybe not quite in the right way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, I find, again... Wait, get into more of our lives, I should say. Mm. Um, then uh, we're going to talk about another sort of emotional event in the world of business, Univision investing in The Onion, which is a very important uh, you know, publication to many of us young adults, and uh, what this kind of tells us about the general media landscape these days. And then finally, we're also going to talk about gender discrimination on Wall Street um, and sort of a, a very just kind of depressing New York Times article about that subject and how the legal system may be silencing or sort of the uh, arbitration system may be silencing a lot of women who would otherwise be coming forward to talk about what's going on and behind closed doors on uh, on Wall Street. Um, But so let's begin with Facebook. Uh, This week, uh, we learned officially that uh, everyone, the most, the biggest, the most important uh, social network in the world is moving beyond the like button. We're now going to be getting additional reaction buttons, including angry, sad, wow, haha, yay, and love. So you can like something, you can love it, you can tell someone how mad it makes you, um, you know, you can ironically tell someone how mad it makes you or how sad it makes you. This adds a whole new emotional palette to Facebook. I just want to start off before we get into the business of this. How do we actually feel about this change? I'm pretty excited about it. I've been pretty annoyed that like was my only option for a very long time. Okay. Were you and why what what was it about only having the like button that is? Well, there there are plenty of things that people post on Facebook that uh, require more complicated emotion than like. And I, I don't know that having only six emotions really captures the... You, you can have more than sort of one dimension there. Yeah. Uh, you can be funny with it. You could be ironic. Um, you, you can be sad if you need to be... Um, I mean, I, I guess I'm going to kind of take a different tack, which is that I think it kind of gives us a false sense of dimensional, emotional dimensionality. Like, it's sort of saying, here are the five emotions that you're allowed to feel now. Instead of, I mean, I think what people have done only having like this far is sort of figured out how to work around it and how to express their real emotions. I don't think emotions have been held back on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, what this is, you know, pretty clearly trying to deal with is like the 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 parachuting problem or the somebody has died problem right do you like do you like a post about someone's divorce or a death in someone's family or uh when there's a terrorist attack do you do you like someone's heartfelt tribute or do you you want to say it makes you sad and so you know there was this sort of inherent awkwardness on facebook when there were these events that didn't uh fit neatly into some you know a thumbs up or thumbs down um there was this sort of awkwardness on Facebook whenever someone would post an event that you couldn't react to neatly with a thumbs up um, or, you know, the absence thereof. And so, you know, since the like when it was first originated was supposed to sort of make it easier to comment and that was replacing comments in some way. Now they've uh, expanded that. You know, it sounds like sort of a, a light change, right? Um, but actually, it's a big deal from a business perspective. At least I think it is. Do you guys? I mean, because they're they're further refining their ability to figure out what our actual reactions to the things we see in our feeds are, and therefore, um, 
making it easier for them to tailor content to each individual user and get us to spend more time on the site. At least that, that's what I think Yeah, I think doing. it could, could drive engagement, which is probably what Facebook wants to yeah. do with I'm it. Actually, I'm actually interested to see what it does with the algorithm because I, I don't... I my personality on the internet is to be funny rather than to be earnest. Yeah. Um and so like I would probably use a lot of these reactions in a way that makes it more funny, which is I think something that you haven't been able to do on Facebook very much. Like people are generally not just not funny on Facebook because it, the like button encourages you you to be earnest. Um but I do wonder how that will mess with the algorithm, you know, when I Someone announces their engagement, and I like put an angry emoji. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's really true, though. I mean, algorithms are not people, uh, and I don't know how well their uh, Facebook's algorithm is designed to deal with irony or humor. Um, the question is, do will enough Facebook users actually try to use these emojis or these reactions in a sort of creative way, or will it just be instantaneous? That makes me mad. That makes me happy. I tend to think that the, the Facebook is a mass market product. I mean, your mom and your grandma are on Facebook now. Yeah. So I think that the vast majority of Facebook users are going to use these earnestly and are probably going to like that they exist in that form. Um, you know, the snarky Internet kids are going to continue to do what they do and maybe they'll tweak with Facebook's right. algorithm. Right. Yeah. But that's not the majority of Facebook users. When you have, you know, over, you know, what was it, like 1.5 billion use, monthly active users, sort of like more, the majority of people are, think, you know, I'm going to just be earnest and honest on Facebook. Yeah, uh. it, it, in a way, this shows that they don't even really have to worry too much about the, the cultural quirks of American millennials. Like, it's not, that's not their, their first concern. It, it's, right, you know, or snarky the, media millennials. Yeah, that Yeah, too. I mean, Facebook is kind of post-millennial. They are. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're post- Although, you know what? I, I was talking to my mom earlier today, and she said that she has left Facebook because she, like, she didn't like the algorithm like she was seeing too many posts about from her friends whose political views she didn't share and she likes liking her friends and so she doesn't want to see their um you know dumb political rants and so she totally left facebook and i i do wonder to what extent that has started happening because i think that that happened with you know like a younger set of people a few years ago but my mom is the first person I know in, you know, a generation older than me who has actually started to leave Facebook. I mean, this is something that they are, you know, constantly concerned about um, is the you know environment of your newsfeed. And actually, this, you know, coming back to the algorithm, um, Will Aramis at Slate had a great article about it was sort of a, a soul in the new machine-esque take on the Facebook algorithm where he went to Menlo Park and, and talked to the people who were in charge of it and, uh, you know, looked into how they were fine and realized how fallible and, and human it really is because, you know, it's, it's you think of an algorithm as just sort of um, this mathematical formula that's going to surface exactly, you know, it's going to read your mind, you know, using what you've clicked before and it's going to just serve you exactly the content that your heart most desires. But... The reality is, you know, the media has figured out how to game this algorithm and create certain kinds of content that people just automatically click like on. And so certain things, certain things rise to the top and you have to worry about people kind of getting a sugar rush from it. And a lot, one of the things that rises to the top a lot, I think, are these like political rants. Um, you know, and so you have this environment where people are talking about your aunt is talking about Donald Trump. And is that going to turn people off to Facebook and their family on top of that? 
I think it's really interesting when we look at this in contrast to Twitter, too, which is where we have our conversations in the public sphere. And Twitter's the one that just moved to the heart, you know. So instead of having, you know, the favorite, the star. So now, so Twitter's moved in the opposite direction. It's become like, more more of a like even yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and but but yet twitter is in theory where we're having less personal conversations yeah i think that's right. yeah t- twitter's where you're supposed to go and talk about ideas you know or that's supposedly where what people do there i wonder if twitter's or... now thinking up oh, oh why did we do that heart what we now we should we moved <laughs> in the wrong direction right that's that's what i'm thinking is twitter twitter's going to announce a range of emotions like a year and a half from now. Well, so let, let's talk about Twitter. We've been on Facebook. Um, you know, fa- Facebook's re- conquering the world and uh, refining its method for doing so. Uh, Twitter, on the other hand, is still trying to figure out basically how to make a profit. Uh, Miriam, you, you've written a bunch about this for the, the journal. I guess we've dwelled a little bit on this at Slate Money, but but what's wrong with Twitter? So Twitter, ha- so Twitter has the problem that it cannot grow its user base. Um, it, that's really stagnated. And the reason that matters in terms of Twitter's ability to make a profit is it's sort of a two-part equation. What Twitter's done a good job of is making more money off of each user, so raising the amount of ads that it, can, that it sells the, you know, the, and you know, the dollars that, that each ad is worth. Um, what it hasn't done is growing the second part of that, which is the number of people using it. And you can only grow the ad part as you know to a point until you need to add more users in order to grow your revenue and the reason that they aren't making money right now is they are investing a lot in mostly like stock-based compensation to pay you know programmers and the kind of people who work in silicon valley uh, which is quite expensive and so that keeps them from reporting a profit on you know a generally accepted accounting principles basis but you know in the only way that they're going to cross that hurdle is to basically get more people to use them, which is what will bring more advertising dollars. My question is, what what would be like the where does Twitter want to be? Do, does it want to be Facebook? Will will it settle for something less than Facebook? Um, well, I think it's will investors like settle for something less? You know? Yeah, I mean, so much was priced in at the beginning for Twitter because people said, oh, it's going to be like a Facebook type thing. And in some ways it is because it's Twitter has figured out one of the few ad formats formats that actually work on mobile. And that's a rare thing. You know, Twitter's ads are effective. They can charge money for them. And a lot of, you know, companies have failed to do that uh, for a mobile device. You know, the in-stream ad is a, is a concept that works. But how useful is Twitter as a platform to the average person? Is your mom on Twitter? Is your grandma on Twitter? You know, obviously, a lot of those people have found a place on Facebook, but Twitter seems still kind of impersonal and, you know, detached from most people's lives. I think you can see just like what different places these two um companies are in just by looking at their their latest innovations right like if you compare a facebook right now again it's advanced it's in- increasing the number of, of reaction buttons and it's actually i think the response overall has been pretty positive i don't think too many people are groaning about this it seems like users are excited people are interested in it at least um whereas twitter's last big initiative aside from kind of constantly talking about what whether or not it's going to ever change its you know feed to something more algorithmic besides i had the the moments button right 
it had this thing where it was going to kind of curate itself. So it was going to make it more accessible to people who might not be power users, might make itself more accessible to the, the wider public. And that just, I, I feel like Moments is pretty much bombed, right? That's, I think, the consensus right. at this point. No, yeah. one, no, no one, one cares about No one about likes it. Moments. And I, in fact, the person who created Moments is one of the people leaving Twitter. Yeah. Um, so it, that to me says, okay, this wasn't really a success. Yeah. So- I feel like Twitter Twitter doesn't tend to play to its strengths. Like they they tend to make moves to try and make themselves more accessible that isn't in line with the way people actually use Twitter. It's like people at Twitter don't use Twitter. Or at the very least are likely to alienate its core audience. And I I guess maybe that's fundamentally it. Twitter is like a giant batch of niche groups. And so it's sort of right. For, for niche audiences that kind of come together in one big app, whereas Facebook was really designed to be for, or has become for everybody. And so now Twitter's figure, trying to figure out how to... I think part of Twitter's problem is that it hasn't been able, it hasn't had the courage to make bold moves. Facebook stopped caring about being cool and just made the moves that would make it a mass audience platform. And when you stop caring about being cool, you kind of lose this baggage that you've been carrying that, that, you know, maybe the niche groups will get upset with you. But if you just plow forward with an actual goal in mind of who your audience is going to be, those niche groups will get over it. Or maybe you don't care as much about the niche groups as you thought you did if you can get to a billion users like Facebook. When, when Facebook decided it, when Mark Zuckerberg said he wanted to be a public utility, that was yeah. that was the, maybe the most important moment for because public utilities are not cool, right. but a billion dollars or a billion users is cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> too. So I think we're going to be uh, moving on from emojis and likes and hearts and love and onto, uh, well, another very dear topic to us, uh, The Onion, in a moment. But first, I have to talk to you about ZipRecruiter. So you know it's really hard to do and it's kind of important to your business, hiring people, finding talent. And you know it's really not an efficient way to find talent or hire people. Uh, putting your job posting up on one message board, that's just not going to do it. You're not going to find all the fish in the sea that way. So, you know, it will help you be much more efficient and help you find the perfect employee. ZipRecruiter. You can use it to post to 100 plus job sites in a single click. You can be instantly matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes, and then you can watch brand new candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface within 24 hours. ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses, and today you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. And uh, one more time for good measure. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. So, um, Miriam, this news isn't brand new, but we wanted to reach back to it because last week, Felix, Kathy, and I were um, busy talking about Davos, and, you know, we couldn't talk about the real world. So we, was, <laughs> uh, we all but, just rolled our eyes. But uh, Univision, which I should say um, is indirectly uh, Felix's employer because he is with Fusion, which is owned by uh, owned by Univision Spanish language TV network, uh, was making some interesting media moves recently. So tell us about those. Yeah. Univision decided to take a stake in The Onion. America's uh, finest news service. Yes. Indeed. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, Univision was apparently feeling some concern about how millennials aren't watching uh, traditional TV. How do we capture millennial eyeballs? Well, let's go to The Onion, uh, which we all think is pretty cool. 
I think. <laughs> um, I, I definitely read The Onion pretty frequently, and sometimes I think it gets the news right in, a, in its own way. Um, and we don't know the value of the stake. But what I think is interesting about it is that it is part of a growing trend of major media companies taking stakes in um, kind of digital media upstarts because of this angst about, you know, the changing habits of millennials and how do we get how do we approach millennials? We can't create something that's going to be cool. So let's just pour some money into something that's already cool. So like Comcast um, took a stake in BuzzFeed. We have Fox and Disney taking stakes in Vice. Um, Comcast also took a stake in Vox. Univision also bought The Root. Um, you know, we have all these examples of these like cool brands that like these big, you know, fatherly media companies are coming into um, with at an, you know, trying to be cool themselves or trying to get a taste of cool. Yeah. And, you know, part of this boils down to um, the fact that, you know, pay TV subscriptions are declining. P- fewer and fewer people are paying for cable, um, which is the or watching TV period. And that's the bedrock for a lot of these of, of a lot of these companies' businesses is just TV ads, and they're trying to figure out how to function on the internet. And so when they say reach millennials, they're they're really saying people who don't necessarily want to watch TV or who or don't TV want, in the traditional sense or TV in the traditional sense. Right. Um, but there is like this cultural, you know. So to me, what's happening is just they don't know what the future is going to look like for media, so they're trying to kind of hedge their bets and become a little bit of everything. And if something works, then they'll have a property that reflects that. Whether it's words on the internet or video on the internet or some combination that ties back into actual television, they'll have something that reflects the future of media. Yeah, and I think that video is huge right now. Like everybody is pouring their money into video because that's what people watch. Um, what what I wonder is how much that scales. I don't, I don't. I personally hate watching video on my phone, and I know that like lots of people do it and. Sp- but at what point does video, the video quality get so good that it becomes impossible to watch it on the network when the networks are clogged with all of this video traffic? Um, like, is that going to be a problem? Well, I was question. talking with an analyst about this just this morning. I had breakfast with him and we were talking about, you know, he was saying that there was actually a debate at a panel that he was on recently. Uh, one person said, oh, as these millennials grow up, they're going to not want to watch video on their phones anymore. Everyone's going to be switching to TV, just like everyone always has, you mm-hmm. know. And other people said, no, no, no. It no, Once they start watching on their devices, they're never going to stop. And that's just the new reality. Um, and so I don't know what it's going to be. But I do know that, like, my 14-year-old cousin only watches on his phone. Um, and even while, like, his family's watching TV on the TV. He's also watching something on his phone. Yeah, right. that, that's interesting when you talk about the data element of this, right? Because especially when you think about a company like Comcast, which is, you know, own, you know, it's Comcast, it, it owns NBC. Um, it's, you know, has a stake in BuzzFeed and as a result, or essentially has a stake in BuzzFeed. Um, My new employer, which yeah. is Verizon, technically, which bought AOL, which yeah. owns the Huffington Post, and, <laughs> and so you're going to have you're going to have these um, cable and internet companies that care about their networks and data and how much they charge people for data, and then you're going to have they also own media properties that their entire business models hinge on the ability for people to watch video on their various devices and the amount of data that takes up, and so you know you're. 
I I actually I don't really even know how to interpret what that's going to mean, but the various business interests all kind of colliding in the in the in these media conglomerates, and I. I it, you know, maybe, Miriam, you can sort out for me why that gives me a vague sense of dread, but it does, and I'm not sure it should or shouldn't. But it's Well, like- I think from a data standpoint, a, a lot of the telecom companies are actually experimenting with that right now. Like, yeah. they're giving free data for video. T-Mobile has this thing where, you know, you can watch, binge on, you can watch on any number of video sites that have agreed, you know, to participate in this with, without but using your data. Sites. But only those sites. Um, but that's still like huge, right? If you're if you're some parent and your kid like uses up all your data plan, you can like watch a lot of Netflix without <laughs> without uh, you know right. using. But your like data. from a from a free internet and open web perspective, that actually could be very bad. Um, well, but, I but mean, continue. No, yeah, nobody. Most a lot of the companies don't actually think it's bad. I don't know. I actually ha- have complicated opinions about that, but. Um, the but then you know AT and T is doing this thing where if you sign up for Directv you can get unlimited data uh, so, and then you can watch all your Directv um, over the top streaming stuff on your phone and not get not use your data so they're really I think they see video and having a video customer as being more important than charging for data. So, yeah, I was going to say, actually, this might be a good thing in a way, because the more interest these, essentially, these, you know, internet and cable utility companies um, have in us being able to watch content, the less likely they're going to be able to, thro- they're going to want to throttle it. So they, maybe that's good so, for the consumer. So my question, actually, is what happens when your business model necessitates needing to scale beyond the United States? Because, um, like, you can't watch video on a 2G network or on an edge network. It just won't work. But in, you know, a lot of countries outside the United States, the cell phones are much, much slower. And and so that, I think that's a problem, too, when when you need to have, you know, more than more than the eyeballs in the United States on your content – like you also have to figure out a way to get that content. Well, that's especially problematic for Facebook. Just to um, bring it back to, I guess, our last. Yeah, segment. they have Facebook Lite they, in in for other countries. They've started doing this thing apparently where um, they actually have two G day mm-hmm. at the headquarters because they have this problem where they have to think about how to make their product right. work for um, for foreign users, especially in India. That's the idea. Is like you're in Mumbai now. Congratulations! You now have to you work use our app on a two G network, um, and so that is something. I don't think anyone's necessarily solved it. We've gotten way off our original topic of the, <laughs> of the onion, but I don't. I actually I think we're almost we're all kind of more interested in this big issue of how well, these conglomerates. Well, one thing I wanted working. to bring it back to though, <laughs> yeah. um, in in what these conglomerates are doing, I think the interesting thing this time around is they're not for the most part buying. They're not. They're being more cautious. They're not going out and saying we're going to buy BuzzFeed, we're going to buy Vice, we're going to buy Vox. They're taking stakes. They're dipping their toe into the water. For Comcast, two hundred million isn't that much money. Yeah, you know, right. It's not like AOL, Time Warner. <laughs> you know, I think they've learned their lesson the last time around when they were like, "Ooh, the internet, it's really cool. We got to jump in and like, you know, go whole hog and like, you know, pay overpay for something." Potentially, right? You know, which they really did in that case. Yeah. Um, uh, or, you know, but I mean, they still want to experiment. They're still they're not they can't, they're not holding back. They're they're acting like venture investors. they're yeah. they're venture investors. Yeah. And essentially, they're you know, taking a bet. Yeah. And, or and hedging. They're hedging. The, they're hedging. 
similarly, uh, I I think recently ABC exited uh, its uh, ownership stake of Fusion and sold it all to Univision. Uh, so you, you are seeing these media companies kind of trying something out and then uh, a shakeup happens and you have new ownership. So you can sort of trade stakes <laughs> as you as you you know, trade your hedging, I guess. Yeah, you can dip your toe in the water. And then again, that's why I I think they're trying, I guess, wrap it up. These companies are trying to figure out what the future is. They don't want to bet too hard in any one direction. Or like you said, you you, you, you know, because they've learned from the past. Yeah. And they don't want to undermine, you know, their core existing businesses by really having to push for something that could be undercutting pay TV, for example, which is their real business. Yeah. Are we excited about this at all? That like Onion, the Onion now has a, a big corporate like par- like semi parent with a forty percent stake. Like you know the little the little old funny alt weekly back in the day is now. Well, how- Univision is owned by like a conglomerate of or of private equity firms. I don't feel like their interest is in influencing Onion coverage <laughs> at this point. I feel like the Onion will probably continue to operate uh, autonomously. Yeah. Right. I it doesn't I I I'm just glad that the people at the Onion are getting paid. That's <laughs> That's always a concern. <laughs> yeah, and you can't say that at every digital media no, outlet. <laughs> this is true. Um all right. So uh, with that, I think we're going to move on to uh, slightly uh, more serious fair. But first, Slate Money is also brought to you this week by Bull and Branch, which makes sheets and bedding that will make you more comfortable than ever, uh, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. I promise. Not only are these sheets uh, super soft and are going to help you get a good night's sleep, uh, they also they also are the first brand that's ever received fair trade certification. So you never have to worry about how they're made, how the workers were treated. Plus, they donate a portion of every sale to charity to help fight human trafficking. You can only get their sheets at bullandbranch.com. Again, that's B-O-L-L and branch.com. And they'll let you try them risk-free for 30 nights. And by the way, it gets even better than that. Go to bullandbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order. Sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, whatever you need. Just go to bullandbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order and use the promo code MONEY. So again, that's bullandbranch.com, promo code MONEY, bullandbranch.com, promo code MONEY. All right, Shane, we all caught this New York Times article um, last weekend uh, titled, A Colleague Drank My Breast Milk and Other Wall Street Tales. And that, that is one of the, uh, just to start off, one of the more catching headlines I th- yeah. I, I've seen. <laughs> like, yeah, of- it was a fascinating headline. And then it got into, it like went to a place I wasn't expecting it to go. And yeah. it ended up being just like a fantastic, if kind of horrifying tale. Yeah. So uh, early front runner for headline of the year at the New York Times. Um, and it's just, a, it kind of told a fascinating story about, um, you know, sexual harassment on Wall Street and how some of the victims were silenced. And Shane, just just talk to me about what what was uh, going on with this piece. Yeah, so so the woman who wrote the piece, um, she worked at Bear Stearns, and she started by talking about a woman she hired um, at when she was at Bear Stearns, and she said that this woman kind of asked her to be honest with her about how women were treated on Wall Street, and then she she went on to detail some of the more horrifying things that had happened, including her 
one of her colleagues drinking a shot of her breast milk. Um, she'd women. been pumping because she'd a, been she had yeah, just had given birth dare. on a yes. dare. They yeah. also they mooted her when she picked up her breast pump to go pump. They she said that on the trading floor they would give women band aids on cold days because they didn't want to be distracted. Um, so so she detailed all of this kind of. There was the condom Blatantly. pizza thing. Oh, yeah. Oh. Condoms. She said on her first day, she opened up a box of pizza, and instead of pepperoni, there were condoms. Open and condoms, they were open. Yeah, yeah open condoms. Um, and and so then she she went on to say that she hired this woman, and she that woman lasted five years before she quit. Um, and she thinks that one of the reasons why women don't make it on Wall Street, because... When you look at the data, MBA women who are in MBA programs, they graduate slightly lower rates than men, but for the most part, equal. They get paid about equal amounts when you look at their first and second year earnings. But then as the years go on, they slowly drop out and their earnings don't go as high as their male colleagues who graduated at the same time as them. Uh, and she thinks that one of the reasons is because women have, well, all, all people who work at banks have to sign an arbitration agreement. So when they have uh, a discrimination claim, they have to go into arbitration uh, instead of going to court and filing a lawsuit. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea here is that it allows this culture to kind of thrive on Wall Street because banks don't really have to answer for it that often. And this is I mean, they say, answer, they pay yeah. you off, basically. Yeah. They just say, like, we'll give you this money if you shut up and go away, well, right? Right, but that, that that's the sort of issue is that then people get compensated for the wrongs done to them, but the culture kind of never changes. Well, it, because it's maybe, never brought into the light. Well, I think right. that's even actually too happy a description of it because one of the things she points out is that I think, you know, Two out of three times, the person in arbitration loses. So you're, right. and that's that's more, it, it's very difficult for an individual to win an arbitration claim. It's it's extremely difficult for one to even someone to even bring one because often the amount of money that you stand to win it pales in comparison to, to hiring a lawyer. Exactly, um, and this is this is kind of a a bigger issue, um, which is companies in general inserting arbitration claims into employment contracts or con- customer service contracts, and oftentimes. What happens is someone is kind of wronged in either they're charged too much on their phone bill or they are discriminated against in some ways. And maybe it's a systemic problem that if there were a class action suit, they could then pull together a lot of claims that would make it worthwhile to bring one. Um, and that does sometimes happen to Wall Street. Uh, people do have brought a few class action claims, but typically because they've signed this arbitration claim, they can't do it. They can't get a class action. And right. so it prevents them from challenging it legally at all. And, and arbitration is only becoming more common. The Supreme Court in the last couple of years have has held up multiple arbitration cases where they say, look, if, if a company wants to mandate arbitration, we can't stop them. Um, and that might even be good. For keeping, you know, many frivolous lawsuits outside of the courts, which I think is is sort of a good argument. Like, there are a lot of frivolous lawsuits that kind of clog up the courts. But then, on the other hand, you have... you consumers never get their day in court, which is something that... Or in this case, employees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, it's weird. That we don't think of something like, you know, arbitration as a feminist issue, but it, right. it kind of is, right? So when I read this story, I thought a lot about the Ellen Powell lawsuit. She uh, she sued her venture capital firm for 
gender discrimination a few years or so ago, and she lost. But in being able to go to trial and talk these things through in a public courtroom, a lot of dirty laundry came out that wouldn't have other we otherwise wouldn't have known. And so she lost, but people have like very complicated feelings about the way that she was treated, and that wouldn't have happened if she had been in arbitration, signed an NDA, and not been able to disclose anything. But I thought it was really interesting, too, that the author of the New York Times article suggests that it would be better for the banks in the long run also to end the arbitration, the use of arbitration clauses, because basically they have this never-ending cycle of having to go into arbitration and, you know, pay these sums on occasion whenever when the person wins. And maybe they could actually root out this culture once and for all if it were brought to light through the court system. Yeah. Right. Imagine if imagine if there was no culture of discrimination and they didn't have to keep... <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine, actually, but... Well, so this is, this is another question I kind of wanted to bring up, um, which is, let's say Wall Street managed to stamp out the incredible colorful examples of of just harassment and got rid of the condom pizzas and nobody ever drank someone else's breast milk ever again and there you know i mean it got another anecdote in the piece is a a male colleague just groped his his other his female colleague's breast to find out on i think on a dare to find out if it was real i mean if that kind of thing wasn't happening anymore Right. And it was just a highly competitive environment um, full of, you know, traders on a floor who are trying to make as much money as possible. Would Wall Street be welcoming to women? So I want to bring up another example that was in this story, which is that the the woman who wrote the piece said that in addition to all of these horrible things that happened, um, when she had her first child, she came back from maternity leave to find a man sitting in her desk with like her Rolodex and it took her a long time to get back her status. And and that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, a colleague drinking your breast milk. That has to do with, you know, a corporate uh, corporate responsibility. To... Yeah, that extends way beyond Wall Street. I mean, that's the type of that's why the wage gap exists, you know, arguably in every field. Yeah. Um, and because there have been studies that have shown that it's not that it's not that, you know, right when we graduate from college, um, we're paid differently. It's once we leave the workforce to have children that women begin to be paid much less than men. Yeah, there's a there's a study by Claudia Golden, who's a, a pretty well known Harvard economist. Um, not pretty well, extremely well known Harvard economist, um, who looked specifically at I think U Chicago MBAs about what happens in their careers. And this this was is the women who made it. Fewer women made it into finance to begin with. They tended to go into slightly softer specialties than the men. Um, but those who did didn't start off at much of a disadvantage. It was, they found repeatedly, children. That was the, that was the at least if when you ran her model and, and did the regressions, it seemed like that was the dividing factor. It was people who left the workforce for a while, never really managed for children, never really managed to make up that lost time in their career. Right. And, and the interesting thing about... Um... Claudia Golden's research is that it shows that this is that this the pay gap is worse in um, fields where you have nonlinear pay. So if you work oh, forty you're, you're, hours you're, a week, yeah, you're going to have to describe the nonlinear so pay. Yeah, if you <laughs> yeah. if you work forty hours a week yeah. and you get you get paid 
$100,000, say, if we're talking about Wharf Wall Street. But if you work 80 hours a week, you get paid a million dollars a year. Yeah. So so it's it's the fact that putting in the extra hours pays off big time. And women just can't do that when they have, you know, a three-month-old baby at home, which that's, you know, that's arguable, too, if, if dad is really around to help. But, you know, the reality of our culture is that often isn't the case. Yeah. So it's like, Miriam, you're about to say something. Well, yeah. I mean, I do want to say, though, even if Wall Street can't root out the problem that's ailing all of our society, which is this wage gap, this persistent wage gap, it's still worth getting rid of all of the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we're... I mean, we need to we need to make that point, right? I yeah. mean, we right. the condom pizzas cannot last. No, that's that, those are... The condom pizzas are that's untenable. That's disgusting. They, they are yeah, untenable. I would definitely quit that day. And so yeah. I, I think what... I, I didn't mean to suggest that we don't need to get rid of the condom pizzas. What I, I, I guess I, I meant to say is that there's sort of these... This is how far Wall Street has to go is it has this kind of animal house problem still. Um, And this woman's experiences were a few years ago. But by all accounts, this stuff still happens. Um, So this is this is an ongoing uh, problem. And then once you even get past the animal house stuff, once you get out of the frat house, there's still a much deeper problem. Yeah. Arguably, the harder problem to solve (laughs) is still there. But if banks could become a welcoming environment for women, they might actually make more money, too, because there's also research that shows that women are better investors than men. And this this is also... And they commit fraud at much lower rates. So there you go. (laughs) All things. All things. So it might be worth... Uh, uh, yeah, like make sure your employees don't grope their female colleagues. Like that's a good step. Yeah, one. I mean, I think we, I think it's important to just like begin at the beginning. We can't throw our hands up and say, "Look at this huge systemic problem." There's no way the Wall Street banks are going to solve it because you know there's so much other stuff besides just the animal house culture. They should start with that, and then ma- perhaps they could be the leaders in changing the rest. I mean, they definitely have the resources to do it, and some of the most highly paid jobs in our society. Right. Yeah. And, and if they really stop to think about how women might help their bottom line, the incentive to do it. Yeah, but it is it is remarkable when you stop and think about the number of problems that need to be solved. I mean, you have the thing with even convincing them that there is a financial problem you, is difficult because of the existence of arbitration. It lets, lets them hush it up. So you can't and, and arbitration itself is not something states can deal with. That's only because of the way the law works. Only the federal government can change the rules surrounding arbitration. Um, then you have to deal with the just basic cultural stuff. Then you have to deal with how to restructure the business. Yeah, and it's not like they're getting pressure from their shareholders because shareholders yeah. aren't really paying attention to these small arbitration claims. If it were big lawsuits, maybe they would. Yeah, maybe. So it's just every there's so many layers to this problem. Right. And it's also it's not like we've ever had a situation where there were a ton of women on Wall Street. So it's not like shareholders can say, hey, look, when there was a ton of women, you made more money, so you should go back to yeah, that. Yeah, we don't like, have a counterexample. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, there's there's not a great... Um, and, you know, even, you know, the the head... Actually, speaking of counterexamples, you know, the, the women-led hedge funds and kind of smaller uh, investment groups that exist tend to manage smaller portfolios. So then you just have to get to the question of, you know, is that because they're not as good or is that because they're discriminated against and so they don't even have a chance to prove themselves? It's they're all these uh, or because customers are, are wary about them. I mean, they're just, you know, it's it's hard 
there are so many things that make it hard for women to prove their case on Wall Street, to even start proving their case that in a way that will make, I think, the companies... And there are so many things that make them not even want to try to begin with. Yeah. I mean, like condom pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Again, just keep coming back to that. Um, okay, so on that note, that lovely, lovely note, we're soon going to move to the numbers round. But first, I have one more sponsor to tell you about. Slate Money is also brought to you this week by Tax Act. Uh, I want to just start this with a little bit of a personal plea. Tax season is coming up this season. Please don't overpay to have your taxes done. Um, most people filing is not their finances aren't that complicated. It's not that hard to file. And with Tax Act, you can file a simple federal and state return for free. It's easy to use and guides you through every step of the process. You can start anywhere and finish anytime by using your computer, tablet, or phone. So it's totally convenient. Uh, so just go to taxact.com. It's easy. It's fast. It's affordable tax filing at your fingertips because, again, you can use it on your phone. And you get everything you need to file your taxes for less. Don't pay more for the same forms, the same features, or the same functionality. Tax Act will save you money, and you'll get your maximum refund guaranteed. So go to taxact.com slash slate. Again, taxact.com slash slate and get simple federal and state returns for free taxact.com slash slate all right and now the numbers round um shane you're gonna go first okay uh my number is zero your number is zero uh which is the amount of cheese that mcdonald's customers are accusing uh, the company of putting in its mozzarella sticks. Oh, God. <laughs> Ew. No, yes, this is... Uh, so just it's just like hollowed fried bread is what they're calling it, I believe. Well, so it's not every mozzarella stick. It's just like a lot of customers are getting mozzarella sticks that have no mozzarella in them. And they're like cutting them open and showing them on... Uh, yeah, yeah. To to take it back to a previous topic, uh, this is a sort of Twitter storm of uh, different angry McDonald's customers suggesting that the company has left cheese out of their mozzarella sticks. Which I just I don't I don't know why you would get a mozzarella stick if you didn't want it to have lots of cheese in it. Well, so. You know, we, These we, are three for a dollar. <laughs> yeah, right. That is. So I think, you know, just to, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm going to get a little too philosophical about this, but I think this is a good illustration of just like how hard it is for a company like McDonald's to debut a new product. I mean, it's a mozzarella stick, right? This is something you can get at every single bar anywhere in the United States that serves food or like every bowling alley, every Chuck E. Cheese. Like this is not a complicated product. And yet making it work with McDonald's uh, supply chain is is a challenge with, with, when you have such a massive company. But then again, they're McDonald's. They have all the resources in the world this at their is... disposal. They have the best fries, according to a lot of people, oh, and that's, fries that's are true. really, really common, right? Everybody makes fries, and a lot of people think McDonald's fries. Do people McDonald's still think fries that? are great. I really okay. We're people not gonna think that. This. I mean, I haven't been to McDonald's in a long time. Yeah, but I haven't I think, been since I was like twelve. I think but McDonald's great. needs to get its quality control in order, and <laughs> they have no excuse, in my opinion. I, I am typically the show's McDonald's defender, as listeners know, but um, I, I, I'm going to, and I still love their breakfast, which I'm glad they serve all day. But I, I have to demur on the fries. <laughs> I do not love them. Um, all right, my number. Uh, my number is uh, six point six uh, percent, which is how much Apple's stock dropped uh, this week uh, on the day after the day after they announced their record quarterly earnings um, because they said they expected fewer iPhone sales in China, and this is this is kind of um, prompting, among others, some of my colleagues to speculate about peak Apple and 
has Apple like you know is it ever going to be able to? I just don't understand Apple. Like it's so big that I just can't wrap my mind around it. Well, yeah, I know it's like just big numbers don't make much. Like I think their profits are like eighteen billion or something that quarter. But I think you know what's interesting to me is this is a company that trades about ten times its earnings. The rest of the stock market trades at you know oh twenty times its earnings, and. Yet Apple has consistently shown the ability, just even if it's not going to grow much more, just to hand tons and tons and tons of money back to its shareholders if it wants to, just like pour dividends on people or buybacks or whatever. And yet somehow people are freaking out because China's economy is going through some sort of a slowdown that's affecting every company, not just Apple. I I don't fully. I, this is one I more time the stock market. I think people are just really emotional about me. Apple, yeah. and they just like need to need to do something. Yeah. I think the concerns are real. Personally, I really? think I think. You know, the thing you have to understand is about investing is that a big company staying really big isn't enough. But it needs to get bigger and it needs to keep growing. I think every tech company reaches a stage in its life cycle where it is big and not growing as fast and it become and it changes to maybe a different investor base. The different with difference with Apple is something that you mentioned, which is that it doesn't trade at a high multiple. And yeah. it, and other tech companies that have gone through this life cycle have seen their multiples crater. So I don't think Apple's stock is going to fall that much. I don't think we're going to have that kind of pain, but Apple might also not be the growth stock of the future. It needs to come up with a hot new product in order to kickstart growth, and it's really, really hard when you're that big. Yeah, but that again, I, I'm not going to argue this for too long, but sort of like you said, it's not even treated like a growth stock. It's just like it, it already is treated like a, a company that's just supposed to shower money on the people who own it already, who, who own it because they can, they almost have guaranteed profits. It's not like they're they're making less money than they were last year. So I don't know. The, the whole thing kind of confuses me, but I this is why I'm not paid to invest, I guess. Uh, Miriam, what's your, what's, what's your number? Well, my number is actually kind of similar to yours. Mine is $482 million, and that was Amazon's net income in the fourth quarter, and which was also a record profit for Amazon, if you can believe that. It's yeah. a very small number compared to Apple's record profit. Um, but but yet, it made a profit, right? Which yeah. is big for Amazon. But yet it was not enough. It was The stock is down, you know, was down about like 9%. Um, yeah. And at, at some points after market, after they reported, even more than that. And I was I had written about this in advance, so I was happy that my call was right. I thought profit expectations for Amazon were way too high going into the quarter. And you might think, why did anyone expect Amazon to make a profit? They've never really made much of a profit before. But part of the reason is because of their cloud business, which has gotten... Um, you know, much better margins than their retail business. So people started to think, you know, maybe the day of profits for Amazon has finally arrived. And that seems to be the case, but not quite as much as people expected. So my predecessor here, it's like Matt Iglesias had this theory that Amazon was essentially this bizarre scheme uh, by Wall Street to kind of accept, like to fund a company for the betterment of society for a while that they would continue to sell us cheap books and cheap consumer goods um, at, and take a loss doing it until finally one day they just controlled everything and could you know make kind of turn on the profit flip the switch flip, flip the switch <laughs> and that Wall Street was just going to bide its time but it seems like Wall Street has sort of stopped biding its time to some degree well I think to some degree and you know you have to remember that unlike Apple this company trades at like four hundred times earnings yeah so <laughs> so it is a growth stock so there is a reason for yeah, yeah. so. 
there's no room for mistakes. All right. And with that, uh, we're done for the week. Uh, thank you for listening to Slate Money and with a uh, slightly different lineup than usual. Shane, thanks for joining us. Miriam, uh, thank you for joining us. Again, uh, Miriam's podcast is heard on the street with the Wall Street Journal. Um, if you liked the show, uh, please subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you especially love the show, uh, leave us a review. Please, please, please. You can also, as always, write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. Again, that's slatemoney at slate.com. We love hearing from our uh, listeners and we'll often respond to you or even uh, read your letter on the show. Our producer is Audrey Quinn. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtig. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. And Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network. Uh, Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money when uh, Felix and Kathy will be back. Drones, Soylent, Digestible Tech, and why Facebook knows you better than yourself. Learn about these things and more from the Ink Uncensored podcast. Every week, join Ink Magazine's editors and writers as they talk about the latest news and obsessions coming out of Silicon Valley and beyond. Subscribe to Ink Uncensored on your favorite podcast app now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.